Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And with the help of the Lord, we'll consider Philippians 1, the verses 6 through 8. And these words also form our text. Hear the word of God. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word to our hearts today. Dear friends, whenever he prayed for the congregation of Philippi, Paul's heart was filled with joy. And he says as much in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. There Paul writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always and every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. So why was Paul so joyful? Why did he rejoice every time he thought about and prayed for the congregation of Philippi. Well, he tells us in verse 5, for your fellowship, or we could say partnership, in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was joyful because of the Philippians' fellowship or partnership with him in the gospel. And as we saw the last time, the Philippians demonstrated that partnership in several ways. First of all, they provided for him. Secondly, they prayed for him. And thirdly, they suffered with him. And knowing this, Paul's heart overflowed with joy. And he was not alone, not even while he was in prison. He had a whole church, the church at Philippi, to stand with him. But as we all know, man by nature is fickle and changing. And that's also true of some Christians. They may be very supportive and encouraging one day, but not so much the next. And when that happens, we feel let down and discouraged. And Paul experienced something of that as well. Several times in his ministry, he too was let down by his friends and supporters. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 15, he speaks of how all those in Asia turned away from him among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. And in the same epistle, in chapter 4, verse 10, he describes how Demas, who was Paul's fellow laborer in the gospel, had forsaken him, having loved this present world. And again, in chapter 4, verse 16, he says that at his first defense, or his preliminary hearing, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Happily, however, Paul was convinced that the Philippians would never do such a thing. Unlike so many others, they would not abandon him, nor would they fall away. On the contrary, they would be faithful. Their fellowship in the gospel would continue. And why is that? Why was Paul so confident of this very thing? 
Well, it's because of God's good work in them. Paul makes reference to this good work in the words of our text. And it's to this subject that we turn our attention with the help of the Lord. Our theme is God's good work in the Philippians. And we'll consider, first of all, the certain continuation of this work. Secondly, the compelling evidence for this work. And thirdly, the affectionate expression of this work. Paul, in our text, speaks of God's good work in the Philippians. He writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now the word he in our text refers, of course, to God. Paul here acknowledges that God has begun and will continue and complete a good work in, or we could say among, the Philippians. Now what is this good work of which he speaks? Some relate this phrase to the phrase in verse 5, where Paul speaks of the fellowship of the gospel. And so according to this interpretation, Paul here is confident that God who initiated the Philippians' fellowship in the gospel will also continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now that's possible. Others say that this refers to the church-gathering work of the Lord Jesus. Just as the Lord Jesus gathered the church at Philippi, so he will continue to gather his church until he comes again in glory, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that too is a possible interpretation. But it's perhaps better to interpret this good work as referring to God's work of grace in their hearts. In other words, it refers to that work of God by which he translates sinners from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. By nature, you and I and every single person is spiritually dead. And as such, we are utterly unable and even unwilling to do anything towards our salvation. If we are going to be saved, God must do this for us. And he does. And he does so in a certain order. First of all, he regenerates us. Again, by nature, we are spiritually dead. And because of that, we can neither hear nor respond to the call of the gospel as it comes to us in the preaching of the word of God. In order to do this, God, through his Holy Spirit, must make us spiritually alive. He must cause us to be born again so that we can hear and respond to the call of the gospel to repent and believe. We call that regeneration. And that's the first work that God does in the heart of a sinner. Secondly, he converts us. That means he opens our eyes to see our sin and the loathsomeness of it. And then he enables us to turn our back on sin, to flee from it and to turn to the Lord Jesus and to look to him and his atoning sacrifice on the cross as the only hope and ground of our salvation. And then finally, he sanctifies us. That means he gives us grace through his Holy Spirit to put sin to death in our hearts and lives and to pursue holiness and live to the glory of God. 
This is the work that he did in the hearts and lives of the members of the church at Philippi. In each one of them, the Lord performed a good work. Now, why does Paul call this a good work? Well, he calls it a good work because it is performed by a good God and it produces a good result, namely the salvation of sinners. And Paul knows that, and that's why he speaks of it as a good work. Now, you'll notice that Paul is confident here that this good work that God had begun in the Philippians, he will also finish. And how necessary that is. If God did not finish this good work, we could never be saved. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry writes this. He says, if the same God who begins the good work did not undertake the carrying on and finishing of it, it would lie forever unfinished. He must perform it who began it. Imagine you're a medical student watching a world-renowned brain surgeon operating on someone. And halfway through the operation, he decides to go home. And he leaves you to complete the operation. But you've never done an operation like this. You don't possess the necessary skill and experience. The only one who can finish the operation is the surgeon himself. If he doesn't do it, then the patient will die. Well, the same is true in spiritual life. Only God can begin the good work, and only God can complete it. And the good news is, he will. You see, God never leaves his work half-finished. He completes it to the very end. Paul says he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what does Paul mean by that phrase? Well, the reference, of course, is to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And it's called the day of Jesus Christ because it is the day in which his glory will be fully revealed and all men will bow before him and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. And it is then, on that day, on the day of Jesus Christ, that the good work that God had begun will be perfected and completed. But perhaps you say, well, are we not perfected at death? Is that good work not completed at death? Well, yes, in a sense it is, but only with respect to the soul. We must remember that God made us body and soul. And when Christ died, he died to save both body and soul. Now, the soul is perfect at death, but the body is not. The body remains in the grave until the day of resurrection. But on that day, the body will be raised incorruptible, and it will be changed, Paul says, from an imperfect to a perfect body, to one without sin and without any of the effects of sin. Now, Paul here is expressing what's commonly known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. According to this doctrine, once God saves a sinner, that sinner can never go lost. He may backslide, but he can never finally go lost. For when God begins a good work, he will finish it fully and completely. David says something similar in Psalm 138, verse 8. And there David writes, The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. You notice again, God will never leave his work half done. Instead, he will perfect it. He will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what a comfort that is. Sometimes the race of faith 
can be very exhausting. There are so many hurdles to cross and hills to climb, and our faith is often weak. Our hearts are often cold. And at times we can wonder if we will ever make it to the end. At times we can even wonder if we are truly saved. But the word of God comes to us again today, and it assures us that when God has begun a good work, he will absolutely finish it. Yes, he will finish it. The work of salvation is God's work. It is not our work. And that's a good thing. For if our salvation depended even the slightest bit on us, we would surely perish in our sins. But thankfully, it doesn't depend on us. Not even a little bit. It depends entirely on God. And God knows this. And therefore, he does for us what we cannot and will not do for ourselves. He preserves us in the grace that he has wrought in us. And he will continue to do so, as Paul says, unto the day of Christ. And so take comfort, child of God, today. You can never lose your salvation. Nor will God leave undone that which he has begun. On the contrary, he will complete it until the day of Christ. And so Paul underscores the certain continuation of God's good work in the Philippians. But how could he be so sure that God had indeed wrought a good work in them in the first place? What was the evidence for this work? And that brings us to our second point. Paul was absolutely confident that God had indeed begun a good work in the hearts and lives of the Philippians. In fact, he says in verse 7 that it was right, and the meaning is morally justified, for him to think this of them. Not just some of them, but all of them, he says. Why? On what basis? Well, Paul gives two reasons in verse 7. First of all, he says, because I have you in my heart. Now, the heart, biblically understood, is the seat of a man's thoughts, feelings, emotions, and will. The Philippians occupied a large place in Paul's heart. He loved them as they loved him. In chapter 2, verse 17, he tells them that he loved them so much that he would gladly lay down his life for them. And as such, he was convinced that they would persevere. His heart told him they would. He knew it in the depth of his very soul. Charles Spurgeon comments on this when he writes, He saw so much of Christ in them that he could not help admiring and loving them. And he felt sure that they were of the sort that never draw back unto perdition, but believe to the salvation of their souls. He perceived that the grace which was in him was in them also. And therefore, as he hoped to be kept to the end, he felt that they would be so kept also as he felt sure that the work of grace in them was of God and of God alone, so he was confident that they would never fail. Paul gives another reason why he was confident. First of all, it was because he had them in his heart, but secondly, he says they were partakers with him of grace. Now the word partakers can perhaps better be translated as sharers or partners 
The Philippians shared grace with Paul. They were partners of grace, namely the grace of God. Now, what is this grace? Well, some see here a reference to the grace of God and salvation. So what Paul is saying is that the Philippians partook of the same grace that he did. They were saved by grace, just as he himself was saved by grace. But others see here a reference to Paul's apostolic ministry, which in other contexts he refers to as grace. In this case, Paul would be saying that in their support of him, the Philippians were his partners in ministry. But neither of these views takes into consideration the context. You notice that in verse 7, Paul refers to his chains. And that's another way of speaking about his imprisonment. He also speaks about the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now these are legal terms. By means of these two terms, Paul is communicating to the Philippians that he viewed his forthcoming trial as an opportunity to defend and confirm the truth of the gospel in a court of law. Now, as such, the word grace must refer to his suffering. In fact, Paul uses a form of this word in this way in chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. There Paul writes, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, in the original Greek, the word granted is derived from the word grace. And so what Paul is saying is that in his imprisonment and forthcoming trial, he is not suffering alone. The Philippians are suffering along with him. And in that sense, they are partakers of grace. No wonder Paul was so confident that the Philippians would persevere. No wonder, too, that he had them in his heart and that he loved them so much. It's because they were prepared to suffer alongside of him for the cause of the gospel. Well, my friends, what about you today? Would you be willing to do the same? Thankfully, we're not persecuted for our faith in the same way that Paul or the Philippians were, at least not yet. Although the Bible does say that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer at least some form of persecution. But what if you were persecuted? What if you were imprisoned like Paul was? Would you stand with him and all the other martyrs who have gone before us? Or would you, like the Hebrews, be tempted to abandon the faith and turn your back on Christ? Our answer to that question will determine whether we have true faith or not. Remember the parable of the sower. Jesus said that the seed that fell on stony places is like the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately, Jesus says, he stumbles. Now, what was it that caused this person to stumble? It was tribulation and persecution. Tribulation and persecution are used by God to test the quality of our faith. The person who has true faith is willing to suffer for it. The person who does not have true faith simply isn't. Oh, may God work in all of our hearts in such a way that we would be willing, yes, even count it a grace 
to suffer for the cause of the gospel and for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Paul cited compelling evidence to support his claim that God had begun a good work in them. He knew this because they were willing to suffer with him. Now that, in turn, produced within him great affection. And that leads us to our third and final point. Paul loved the Philippians very dearly. As we've already observed in verse 7, he declared that he had them in his heart. But now in verse 8, he makes another and even stronger declaration. He writes, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul here says that he longed greatly for the Philippians. Not just some of them, but all of them. Now what he longed for precisely is not known. Paul doesn't say in so many words. Perhaps he longed to see them, or perhaps he longed to hear from them, or perhaps he longed for their spiritual growth and development. Maybe it was all three of these things. But whatever it was exactly, he longed for them. And he did so, he says, with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now the old authorized or King James Version translates that as follows, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. You have to understand that in ancient times, the bowels or the intestines were regarded as the source of deep feeling. And we say something similar in English, don't we? We speak of a gut feeling. And that's exactly the meaning of the phrase here. What Paul is saying is that he longed for the Philippians in the deepest part of his being, in his very gut, we could say, with the same affection that Christ has for his people. Now, when did Christ manifest that kind of affection? Well, he manifested it many times in his ministry. We think especially of Matthew 9, verse 36. There we read these words. But when he, that is Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now, this verb, moved with compassion, is the same word that's used here in Philippians 1, verse 8. Paul longed for the Philippians the way that Christ was moved with compassion for the multitude. And to reinforce this, Paul appeals to God. He says, God is my witness. It's as though Paul is saying, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, God who cannot lie and who searches the heart and tries the reins knows that I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. In saying this, Paul manifests one of the chief marks of a true servant of God. A true servant of God loves his congregation with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, this affection is not always as strong as it should be, either because the minister's heart is not right before God or because of certain issues within the congregation and how these issues are being handled. But he still loves them. He loves them so much that he's prepared, like Christ, to do anything for them. He will labor for them. He will speak the truth to them, even if it hurts, even if it offends. He will do whatever is necessary for their salvation and growth in grace. 
he will even if need be lay down his life for them. And they will do the same for him. Philippians were a good example of this. Why did Paul love the Philippians so much? Well, partly because they loved him so much. As I already mentioned, they were partners with him in the gospel. That means they prayed with him. They supported him financially. They stood by him. They were willing to suffer with him. And the result is he loved them and longed for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. But my friends, where God is at work, there will not only be affection between pastor and congregation, and congregation and pastor, there will be affection between the members as well. And again, this affection will not always be as strong as it should be. Because sometimes members of the same congregation do and say things that make other members feel uncomfortable. But where there is true love, there will also be a willingness to confess our faults to one another and to forgive one another and a desire and commitment to move forward in love and peace and unity. My friends, do you know something of that? Do you greatly long for your pastor as he longs for you? Do you greatly long for your fellow believers in Christ as they should long for you? Anyone who has tasted of the grace of the Lord Jesus cannot help but love and long for other believers. Why? Because he sees Christ in them. And because he loves Christ, he will also love them. But also because he is like Christ. He has been united to him by faith. Christ is his head, and he is a member of his body. And since Christ loves his people, they will also love each other. Now Paul knew of that love, and he experienced it himself. And so did the Philippians, and they manifested it in their lives, in their attitude towards him and towards each other, such as the fruit of God's gracious work. My friends, is that fruit manifested in your life as well? Oh, may God grant that we all may long for each other with the affection of Jesus Christ. This is how much he loved us. This is how much we ought to love one another. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you have heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated.
If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, L-E-H-M-A-N, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can visit the donation section of our webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him. And for that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing member of a faithful, Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.